right, so welcome, welcome. Uh, my name is Bryn Williams, as I said, and if the kids could just go out with uh, Brooke, actually, that would be great. Any more? Amanda, do you want to go? <laughs> just kidding. Uh, all right, so welcome, welcome. Um, we're carrying on with our series in Ephesians today, and um, <clears throat> I-, I wonder, have any of you ever heard the expression, uh, running around like a chicken with its head cut off? Have you heard this expression? Yes? Well, uh, I... Uh, perhaps foolishly, thought that I'd never seen this for myself, so I thought that I would look it up on YouTube. This may have been a mistake. Um, If we just go to the next slide. I discovered that normally when you you have a chicken and you want to eat your chicken fillet or whatever, you have to cut off the chicken's head. Uh, And at that point, the chicken will actually continue just to run around. Uh, but on one fateful day in 1945, uh, and this was recorded in Life magazine and Time magazine, uh, there was a particular chicken called Mike, no relation, I assume. Uh, and uh, this, they, they chopped off the chicken's head, and he jumped off the thing and uh, ran around and then uh, just sort of shook it off and continued to just walk around on, in the barnyard like for days until after about a week the, uh, of him just walking around with no head, the, uh, the, the, the farmer, who I think it was called Edward, uh, so the, the farmer thought he would, you know, this, this chicken obviously has a great desire to continue on in this manner, and uh, he, he would feed it with a dropper, and this is a bit disgusting, but he would feed it with a dropper through the top, and the chicken lived, I think, I, I couldn't get an exact date, it was either 18 months or four years, one of the two. I, either way, that's, that's a long time for a chicken with no head. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, so that was just an interesting thing that I discovered. And, um, but, but really, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that when you, when you have a chicken and you chop off its head, uh, the chicken will actually continue to run around, and it will continue to actually look alive, even though it's really dead. You know, and so the, the video that I watched was horrendous. The, the, the chicken would just, it, it ran and then fell over and then ran and fell over and jumped and flapped and crashed into things until eventually, after a while, it just kind of came to a standstill and then just went still. And what God is telling us in the Word of God today is that that is a little bit like what we all as humanity began like. We, uh, the horrific truth is that we're, we're kind of born this way, actually. We were born dead, and then we exhibit signs of life for 80, if we're lucky, 90 years, and then eventually we stop and go still. And, you know, this, <clears throat> if you're feeling uncomfortable as I'm saying this, then uh, I, I know I am. Uh, I can't really apologize because... We, we need to feel this. We need to feel this discomfort. We need to feel this sense of that is that's gross and it's wrong and it's just it's a contortion and a distortion of the way things are meant to be. Um, and in Ephesians 2.1, God tells us, it's just coming up on the screen, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So this is the way we all started out. So the message today is, is going to be very much a bad news than good news message. Because the truth is God didn't leave us in that condition. He didn't leave us in that state. 
uh, he made us alive together with Christ. And uh, he, he raised us up to a position of privilege that is just actually beyond imagination for us. And we're going to struggle to understand exactly how much God has done for us. If you'll allow me just to stretch the metaphor beyond what it can bear. We were disfigured creatures. And God changed us into perfect children and moved us out of the barnyard and into the house and gave us positions of responsibility that he only gives to his children, to his sons and daughters. And so this is, this is the flow of what God's going to tell us this morning. And really, it's part of the series that we're doing on Ephesians. And, and really, this, this section of Ephesians is the first three chapters. And uh, what, we, what we're seeing is that to live the transformed lives of love and purpose that God has for us, we must have our understanding of who we are in Christ changed at the deepest deepest level so that's what we're doing if we're going to live lives for god we must have our understanding of who we are changed at the deepest level and this is why we're taking eight weeks to go through just the first three chapters you know i heard somebody say rather humorously they said that if you if you've got a month to wait you can grow a pumpkin yeah but if you want to grow an oak tree it takes how long about 100 years yeah? And so that's why we're spending eight weeks going through this, just getting this into our minds. Who are we in Christ? And this week, we're going to look at who we were by nature and then who we now are by grace and how this will enable us to live with urgency and confidence in our, in our lives, which God actually has planned for us. So we were dead by nature, but God made us alive with Christ. So let's take a look. I mean, first of all, like I said, this is going to be a bad news, good news thing. We have to understand the squalid and hopeless and terrifying condition that we were in. And in fact, all humanity is in before they, uh, they meet Christ. So if you have a look in your Bibles, if you open up with me in Ephesians 2, chapter 1, we're going to be looking through Ephesians 2, about 1 to 10, actually. So I'll just read it for you. It's going to come up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So when he says you, who's he talking to there? Um, I don't know if you've ever had that situation in class where the teacher is clearly angry and points forward. And it looks like it's pointing in your direction, but you don't want it to be you. So maybe you, you look around kind of over your shoulder, wonder, is it me? Well, the Bible makes it really clear God is talking to us today because he says, you were dead in your transgress transgressions and sins. And in case we may be thinking that God is talking to somebody else, uh, like some sort of terrible group, like, you know, like we're talking like the Nazis or the Khmer Rouge, Pol Pot, you know, somebody terrible like this, Ted Bundy, for example, uh, he makes it really clear in verse 2, he says, you were dead. And then again in verse 3, he says, all of us lived among them at one time. Well, maybe he's talking about the Ephesians and the Jews, perhaps. And then he says, no. He says, like the rest of mankind, we were by nature objects of wrath. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So God leaves us in no doubt. This is every single human being born into the world before they meet Christ, before they become Christians. So what exactly is true about all humanity? Well, the first really obvious thing to say is that we were dead. 
which is, you know, what my horrific illustration was trying to show us. Um, Not half dead, not mostly dead, but completely dead. Uh, And and God, you see, is brutally honest about our condition. Um, But you may say, well, actually, that's not what I see when I look at humanity. I mean, you know, I've got this DVD series called The Ascent of Man. And it's, you know, very happy about what man has achieved. You know, we've come so far, art and music and social institutions and science and all of these sorts of things. But... um, but God talks about death in different terms, actually. Uh, God says that we are spiritually dead. And sometimes we can think of spiritual like, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's just something that somebody has a private interest in. But God is really clear that the spiritual is fundamental to our existence. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's more important than our existence, but it's so intertwined with who we are that if we are dead spiritually, we are, to all intents and purposes, dead. Uh, Jesus uh, made it really clear when he was praying to the Father in John 17. He says, Father, this is eternal life, to know you. And so if we don't know God, if we're not in connection with the only being who has life within himself, then we are really dead. And if you're not a Christian and you're still wondering whether all this is, is true you probably offended by this description of human life. I know that I was before I was a Christian. Um, it's a horrible thing to say. It's a grotesque thing to say that, that we're like chickens running around with our heads cut off in this disfigured kind of a life. And, you know, you just have to take my word. I, I wouldn't say it if, if God wasn't really, really clear about it in his word. So God goes on to say that not only will we dead, but we were powerfully influenced by, by forces, forces that are both internal to us and external to us. So if we just look at the first one, if you look uh, in two, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, so you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk. The NIV has live, but in Greek it's walk. Um, when you followed the ways of this world. So it says we were dead in our sins which we used to walk in. This was a daily pattern of our life. This is what we did just day to day. Um, And he uses these two words. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. And this is is an expression that covers basically all of our lives because transgressions are things that we do and we shouldn't do. They're wrong. Uh, And sins comes from the root that basically means to miss the mark if you shoot an arrow. So they're things that we do and they're wrong. And they're things that we don't do and we should do. So some people have it as sins of omission and sins of commission. Um, And so really it's covering the whole gambit of human experience. And and he goes on actually in verse 3. He says, um, also, oh sorry, 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Now, in the original, if you have a slightly more literal translation, it's, it, goes, it, it explains how actually we follow our thoughts, our sinful thoughts, and we follow our sinful actions. Yeah? So sins of the body and sins of the mind. And so this is really covering just about everything, isn't it? Because, you know, I think when Jesus, when he was teaching, he, uh, he was saying that actually the problem is not what goes into you that, that makes people evil. 
It doesn't make you unclean if you, if you eat certain things. Or You know this uh, very popular teaching by Maslow. Uh, Maslow said that basically human beings are generally just good, and uh, the problem is environment. Yeah? So the environment is what makes us evil. And Jesus actually goes well beyond that, and he says it's not what goes into you that's unclean. It's what comes out of you. He's basically saying that we are evil from the inside out. You know, and this is, it's, it's such a, a, a searching critique of humanity. He, he, Jesus says that, you know, you've heard it said that if you commit murder, then that's wrong. And I think everyone would agree that is wrong. You know, committing murder has never been a particular social good in any society. But Jesus goes further. He says, if you even are angry with your brother, you know, rage, filled with hatred for him. You've already committed murder with him in your heart. And so Jesus is saying that the problem is not that we do evil things, although that is the problem. Uh, The evil comes out of us. We can't get away from it. It's our natural bent towards evil. It's what, what is called in this passage the sinful nature. And this, this is why we lock our doors isn't it? This is why you lock your car when, when you leave it in, in, the, in the thing. This is, this is why we say those terrible things to our husbands and our wives and our children and we wish we could take them back. And this is why there's things in our lives that we hope no one will ever find out about. You know, that's because, and, and even, if, even if we do manage to stop doing things, we can't stop thinking them. They just come up. This is why the thought of having your thoughts projected onto you know, a cinema screen for your friends and family and co-workers to watch is horrific to us. It makes us squirm. I know it does me. Um, and so you, you get what I mean about this being bad news, bad news, bad news. Eh? Um, so we were dead to God. We have a natural bent towards evil. But that's not all because actually we're led astray by the world system If you look there in in verse 2, it says, and you followed the ways of the world. And in a sense, this is actually a really simple concept to understand. The world and the ways of the world are just the ways of doing life. It's culture that's been created by individuals who have a bent towards evil. So it's kind of like institutional evil, if you will. And, you know, we see this we see this in girls who, you know, feel like they have to be so thin that the only logical thing that they can do is, is to vomit up their food or not eat at all. Well, you know, we, we see it, and you know, I, I don't mean any disrespect by this, but we see this in people who kill their unborn children very often, at least in Britain, because it's inconvenient. You know, how have we gotten to the stage where we think that's okay? And, you know, many of my friends would just be like, yep, we're pro-choice. You know, and I know there's terrible situations that are different to that, but that situation is, is a real one, at least in Britain. I'm not sure what it's like in your country. And, you know, we see it in, in the lack of regulation and uh, the greed that led to the financial crisis. You know, The Economist magazine says that many people feel that the financial crisis was caused by a failure of regulators and also the greed of people who just wanted to grab, grab, grab. And then the system collapsed, creating a worldwide problem. You know, people often say, America sneezed and the whole world got sick. You know, and this is by failure in one country spread to the entire world system. And who has to pay for that? The Economist magazine says that the rich have bounced back the fastest. 
And the poor are suffering the most because of the cuts in the health system and the benefit system and all of this sort of stuff. And I think it's paid for by us in the middle, isn't it? And so this is the world system that we're a part of. So we're being led by our own internal desires. We're being led by the system around us that pushes us forward in a particular direction. And this, this isn't even everything because it also says that we're influenced by evil spiritual powers. If you look with me, uh, you followed the ways of this world, verse 2, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And this is, this is a clear reference to the devil. If I had more time, I'd, I'd show you in the parallel passages and this sort of thing. You know, the Bible tells us that the devil is the god of this world. He's the ruler of this world. He somehow has some kind of authority and control within the world. You know, in 1 John 5, it says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And, uh, you know, the Bible makes it clear that there are evil, personal, unseen spiritual beings who affect individuals and cultures in rejection of God and in going towards sin, which ultimately leads to people's deaths. You know, and, and this, this particular part of the teaching, I think everything I've said so far, people would be like, yeah, okay, we, we can see that there are some problems. But this particular part is very unpopular. Because if you start going around saying, well, you know, I think that there are evil spiritual powers controlling the world. You know, you sound like one of these conspiracy theory nuts who are talking about the chemtrails in the sky and how, you know, all of this sort of stuff. But, but the Bible's really clear. <clears throat> that these forces are real, that the devil is real, that demons are real. And, and let me just, you know, like quoting from The Usual Suspects, I'm not sure if you've seen this film, it says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. You know, and actually, is it so far-fetched? I mean, really think about it. Is it so far-fetched that malevolent beings are influencing human culture You know, when we think, you know, of of family relationships, when we think on the micro scale of murders and all of this sort of stuff, nobody, do we want this? Is this the situation that we want? No. Uh, And then as we go, you know, out to the macro scale, you know, when you think back on the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields and the hundreds of thousands of people that were killed there, you know, the, the Holocaust with six million Jews, two million Polish people, you know, when we think back on that, is it, is it so far fetched? And we must be careful as Christians because there's a tremendous pressure to downplay the spiritual. Any kind of supernatural, we are basically forced by our culture. This would be, you know, the ways of this world. We'd be forced into thinking, actually, you know, maybe we could just back off on this. Demons, well, maybe that's just a bit more mythical. But if we do, if we back up on that, the world is not going to make sense. And we're going to think, actually, that it's a holiday camp that we're on. And actually it's not. It's a battleship. And so the source of evil tendencies is both internal and external. Uh, It's it's both in us and it's supernatural in that sense. And finally, God tells us, as if that wasn't enough, we're all under the judgment of God. 
If you look in verse 3, it says, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. The NIV, I think, says objects of wrath, but literally it's children of wrath. And now God's wrath, very, very unpopular. Very unpopular. Nobody wants to hear about God who's going to judge. Nobody wants to hear it. And the wrath of God, actually, has two stages. You know, in Romans 1, it tells us that the wrath of God is actually coming upon the sons of disobedience because God gives us over to the lusts of our flesh. He gives us over. He says, you want to live in rebellion against my good plan and my good way? Then you can have the world as you like it. And so we have all of the evils in the world. You know, we've just talked about, you know, a lot of them you could think of a lot on your own. Um, and, And so this is the first stage of God's wrath is we basically get the world without God. We get the world living apart from him. Humanity separated from God. If you want to see what it's like, just go outside, read the news, you know, all of this kind of thing. As you walk through a dark alley and have to look over your shoulder, this is the, this is the beginning of the wrath of God. He says, you want it this way? That's, that's what you can have. But that isn't, isn't it, actually, because <clears throat> God is going to judge the world. And and truly, this, this is what we want. We want justice. We want the world to be put right. But the problem is that as humanity, we're not the good guys. We're the bad guys. That's the problem. And so when God does come and when God does judge the world and when he does remove evil, you know, John Stott has a really helpful thing where he says that the wrath of God is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. I mean, that's what we want, isn't it? That's, you know, when we watch films and we see, you know, good versus evil, this is what we want. We want it to come out with good being all there is. But the problem is, if God does that, he'll get us. Because the evil comes from inside us. We're choosing it. You see it in this passage where he says, we were gratifying the desires of the flesh. We were choosing it. And so this is a really dark, depressing picture. Yeah. And there's only one way out. If, if I could just emphasize anything, I would say there is only one way out of this situation. And we're going to watch just a little video now. Um, which is something that I've found so helpful in the past. I mean, the, the quality, the video quality is not the best, uh, but I, I hope that you'll be able to, to see. Thank you. 
Because we come to two of the most exciting words in the Bible in the next in the next verse. Now, if you look with me in verse four, it says, "But God." You know, this dark, dim picture of life. We then have these words, "But God," and in the Greek, it's, they're just right next to each other. It just says, "But God." You can put them in big capital letters. Um, It says, but God, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. So God didn't leave us in this terrible condition. He came to the rescue. He sent Jesus to save us. And uh, You know, just in case we were in any doubt, if you look, it's really interesting if you look all the way through the passage, if you look at all of the verbs, who did what, you know, we contributed less than nothing. You know, we were following the ways of the world. We were following the course of this world. We were following the devil. We were indulging the desires of the flesh. And then it says, but God, he made us alive. He raised us up with him. He seated us at his right hand in the heavenly realms. It's God that rescues us. There's only one way out. This is what our world needs to hear. There's only one way out of this terrible and helpless condition that we find ourselves in. And so how did God do it? God saves us with Christ. If you look there in verse 5 with me, it says, He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. So God's saving or rescuing of us happens with Christ. It happens because Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. It it happens because, as God tells us in Ephesians 2.13, he says, Now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I I love that moment in the video where he just throws him off and he brings him near. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we're united to him. We're part of his body, actually. Ephesians goes on to tell us. Well, it's told us in uh, chapter 1, actually. Uh, And it tells us there, it's in verse 16, it says, And he might reconcile us both to God in one body. And so what did God do when he saved us? Well, actually, it's just, it's beyond our imagining. And this is why Paul prays. You know, and last week, Rich told us what Paul prayed. He says, God, I pray that you would give to these people the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you so that they may know what is the hope of our calling. Because it's incredible. We will not be able to understand it in, in, in this life, I think. You know, we can go some way, but it's just too incredible for us. And actually, you know, this is what I've been praying for us all week is that God would give to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of what he's done for us. So what exactly did God do? Well, he made us alive. You know, we've we've said that. He made us alive, you know, and, and that means that we now are in relationship with God. He's connected us to Jesus. We're connected to the Father. We've been seated at the Father's right hand in Christ. We have access Kent's going to tell us in a couple of weeks. We have access to the Father through Christ. And if you look back with me in verse uh, 1, 18 to 20, 
I said, just look, it should be just on the same page. Uh, Paul prays for them, and it's that prayer that I just told you about, where he prays that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened and so on. Um, and then his, his final request is that they would know the power that's at work for those who believe. This is verse 19. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ, God exerted in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So God raises us up out of spiritual death into spiritual life. We're now connected to God. It's all in the past. You know, all the verbs are just, he has made us. We have been raised with Christ. It's past, past. If you like, you can put a big line between verse 3 and verse 4 in your Bibles and just say, that is what I was, this is what I am. You know, the Bible talks about this as new birth. We are not, as Christians, turning over a new leaf. We are made fundamentally new. It's, you know, like my silly example of a transition from a chicken with its head cut off to being a beloved child. You know, this this is the, the nature of the transformation. We have been completely changed. We've been made alive. And why God did this? tells us there in verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us. And he saved us by grace. And Patrick next week is going to be telling us so much more about grace, so much more of what it means that it's not our effort, it's God's effort. But I mean, so far, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? People are dead. God makes us alive. Dead people don't contribute. Yes, God made us alive together with Christ. Um, And if, if, if you're not a Christian today, then you know, what, what do you do? How do you make this transition? How do you make this transition from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive? And God, I mean, yeah, God tells us right at the end of, chapter, of, of this paragraph in verse 8. He says, for it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. That word faith is just trust, through the simple childlike trust that says, Jesus, you are the only one who can save me. Please save me because of your death on the cross. And that's it. It's just that simple. So we've been raised with Christ and also we've been made alive. We've also been seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Seated with him, raised with him. And this underneath is what theologians call the the resurrection, the ascension, and the current session of Christ. He was dead. He was raised to life. He was raised into heaven. He ascended into heaven, and he's now seated at the right hand of God. And what we've seen, actually, is where Christ is, we are with him, because we're with Christ. And so what does this mean for our lives, really? I mean, practically, because this is it's, it's a bit mystical, isn't it? I don't know, I mean, it really excites me, if you can't tell. But um, a lot of people feel like, you know, this is just very mystical. So we're joined with Christ in the heavenly realms, wherever that is. Uh, You know, what difference does it make in our life? How important is it that we understand that we were dead and that now we're alive together with Christ? And I'd submit to you that it's absolutely crucial that we begin to get this into our understanding of who we are as Christians. It's crucial because it will determine the confidence and the urgency that we live the life that God has planned for us. 
If you look with me in 2 verse 10, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. So we've seen we're not saved by works, which Patrick will go into lots of detail on next week, but we're saved for a life with God. We're saved. We have a part to play in God's salvation of people. And actually, this is, this is what Paul turns to at the end of the book, at the very end of the book. And a lot of commentators say that the way that Greek rhetoric worked, what you put at the end is the most important. And so in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 10, he's, he's speaking to them. He's given them many instructions. He's really fleshed out what it means to walk in love. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And, it's, it, you know, he's told us in uh, verse 22 of chapter 1 that Christ is seated above the rulers, the authorities, the powers. So Christ is seated above them. And where are we seated? With Christ. So where are we? Above the powers, the rulers, and the authorities. You know, back in verse 2 where it said that Satan is the ruler of the, the domain, the kingdom of the air. Same words here. Against the rule, against the authority. We're seated above that. So we're engaged in a spiritual battle. And if we don't understand this, our lives are not going to make sense. You know, we're going to encounter difficulty. We're not going to have the kind of pleasant lives that we're promised on TV or that our friends in medical school really want when they're talking about which car to get and, you know, which flat they're going to buy. You know, when we don't get that life, we're going to be confused if we don't understand that this is a spiritual battle that we're involved in. And so what, what are our attack weapons, as it were. We're not going to do this in a lot of detail. We'll cover this later. Um, but what are attack weapons? Can anyone remember of the set of armor that we've got? Stand firm, taking up the... Sure, sure. But what are our attack weapons? The sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. And then he says what? He says, praying at all times in the spirit which means that we have access to God. We take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which I believe is the gospel. And that is the, the weapon that we have against the forces of darkness. As we go into a world where people are dead, led astray, we come with the light of the gospel into the world. And so just in terms of application, this is, this is, this is the kind of thing that we're to be thinking about. So what kind of attack are we to expect? If this, these, these are the things that we're to use as weapons, so the word of God, sharing the gospel and prayer, what kind of attack do you think you're going to get? Don't preach. Don't, don't say that. And, you know, in many cultures that comes to us in, you know, in some parts of the world where people are killed and so forth. But in us, we don't have that. We have the oppressive force of the intolerance against intolerance. Yeah? So if you say, Jesus is great, he works for me, he saved me, that's fine. The world is fine with that. 
absolutely fine. But if you say Jesus is the only way to be saved, you are dead in your sins. I can tell you from personal experience, your friends will not like it. But this is what we're to expect. It's a battle. It's a battle. And you know, you know what's, what's, an, what's another area? Our witness is based, Jesus said, if you love one another, the whole world will know that you're my, my disciples. He says that in John 13. By your love for each other, the world will know that you're my disciples. So what's another area that we can expect to be attacked in? That witness, the witness of our love for each other. Do you find this with Christian friends? Is it hard for you to keep Christian friends? Do you find that you just argue, husbands and wives? Do you find you just get at each other? You know, I'm not saying that the devil is responsible for everything. Because, you know, Paul's made it clear. There's three things. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. But C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says that there's two equal and opposite errors that we can fall into in the world. He says, you know, with regard to the spiritual forces, with regard to devils, he says we can either completely focus on them too much and be obsessed with them, or we can completely ignore them. And they're happy with both. They're happy with either a sorcerer or a complete secularist. And we're called to walk the middle, to be aware that this is going to happen, to be aware that we're involved in a battle. And to be confident that we are in Christ, confident that we have authority through the word of God, through the gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. So I'd just like to invite the worship guys back on. Just as we're coming to a close and singing our last song, I just want to invite you, just if you're, you know, if, if you feel like you've gone a bit slack on either of these things, if you've, if you've stopped kind of sharing your faith, if you've stopped, you know, praying, actually, you know, praying for yourself that you would know this more and more, praying for, for us as a church, that we would know who we are and the urgency of the situation. Or, or perhaps you've, uh, in your relationships with other Christians, there's, there's other Christians that you've actually been having a bit of a, a spat with. Can I urge you now just to let God search your hearts as, as we're in worship? Uh, can I invite you just to stand with me as, uh, as we pray and as we sing our last song? Just respond to God in some way in your heart. If you want to turn, if you want to put your hand up, if you want to step forward, if you want to just in your heart do it, that's all fine. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the fact that you've saved us from a deplorable condition and you've raised us up to positions of wonder and love and light and fellowship with you. And I pray that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, Father. I pray that we would understand this deep in our beings and that we would go out aware that we're in a battle, aware that we need to be clothed for battle confident that you are with us you never leave us or forsake us and jesus you will be with us till the end of the age as you promised i pray this all father in jesus name amen